future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And it's another week. And indeed, indeed it is. We've got a very special guest this week. Yep, and uh, we're going to have to hurry. We'll talk a little bit more when we come back. But okay. we've got uh, our first and original guest for the Future Quake Show, Robert yeah. Hyde. Yeah, he's been on several times since I've been on. And uh, most of you new listeners will not be familiar with him, but you're in for a real treat. Yeah. This is going to be a very in-depth discussion this mm-hmm. week. Uh, and since we're coming up to election time, we're going to have some fundamental discussions about evangelicals mm-hmm. and their worldview and reassessing their worldview. Yeah. Well, and this is going to really challenge some of yeah. your fundamental thinking. Well, let's just uh, cut away to the interview. Okay, here we go, and then we'll be right back at the end to uh, finish up on Future Quake. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And uh, we are here with uh, one of our favorites of the Future Quake show, uh, not that? only an old friend of the show, but probably one of our oldest, not in age, but in association with the show. Well, he was the first guest, as I recall, right? You got it right. Yeah. We're here with uh, Robert Hyde, mm-hmm. who uh, I might say is the was the first inaugural guest on Future Quake uh, back on April 5th, 2005. Wow. And has been our most prolific guest uh, on the show. And I just want to welcome you, Robert, for being back on our show. Hello. It's very good to be here. Well, I, I, we've not had you on our show since we've had our newly formatted show uh, here on WENO, and uh, I'm really looking forward for the large number of new listeners we've had since then, since we've started our iTunes uh, podcast and other things, uh, to be able to, to uh, find out what you have to say. I think they're going to be very excited yeah. to hear it uh, as a um, one, one, one of our favorite and uh, most associated guests with our show. Something else to tell you, too, that makes it sort of momentous with you being here, uh, our show that we'll be broadcasting this Wednesday uh, of your interview will be the 200th original broadcast of the Future Quake Show. 200th even, huh? 200th. Can yeah. you imagine back uh, f- almost four years ago uh, when we sat in the studio for the very, very first time that we'd be back together for our 200th show? Amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And I tell you, things have gotten only more intense since that first evening we did our show. 
uh, live here. We've had only more to talk about about what uh, awaits us in the future. And this show, I believe, is going to be one of the most important shows we've ever done at Future Quake. Uh, I entitle it The Reassessment of the Evangelical Worldview and Our Duties to Society and the State. And uh, since we've had a, so many new listeners to our show since your last visit, could you very briefly describe your background in credentials and education and profession, what other activities you're involved in, etc.? Uh, yeah, my um, my background and credentials are really pretty undistinguished. I'm a, I'm an educator. I teach in high school uh, right now, teaching in a Christian high school. Uh, master's degree in teaching. Um, I've done some other things. Uh, run for political office in times past, and uh, have taught uh, computer programming and uh, various disciplines. Uh, but also, you've taught uh, history. Uh, Bible, history. history, Bible. Uh, your your undergraduate degree was in mathematics and history. Mathmat, and that was at what school? Uh, that was at New Mexico Tech. New Mexico Tech. You've also served as a pastor, correct, of a major denomination yes, I have, of a of a small country church. Okay, uh, but an evangelical denomination. Yes, that's now, right. A pastor in good standing, as well as you've been an educator at a Christian school for how long? Uh, was an educator. I've been an educator at a Christian school for about 17 years. Okay. Oh. All right. Well, uh, <clears throat> those have been interrupted years because I can tell you personally that uh, I sat under this man's tutelage at a Christian school approximately three decades ago. Isn't that That's right? Right. So uh, this has been a, uh, a long-term association wow. uh, here. We were we were a lot younger then. About <laughs> <him>. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, I appreciate you so much for uh, coming on air. And in fact, you're even uh, you have even some uh, uh, assistive work in the political process right now, correct? Some volunteer work that you do. Yes, I'm a, I'm a participant with the Constitution Party right now. All right, all right, cool. Well, um, I'm excited to jump right into our discussion. I'm going to jump right into it because I know our time will get away from us. Um, since we're just a few weeks away from an important election, national election, and that's why I wanted to have you on before then. Uh, it's very important that uh, Bible-believing evangelicals, uh, which are the, the, the kind of folks that typically listen to our show over the airwaves or Internet, now just stop and take some time for introspection in regard to where they're going uh, in advance of some really momentous decisions that need to be made, of which the election is just one. Uh, to start our deliberations in this interview, uh, I think we probably need to assess where we are right now in terms of the thinking of the typical evangelical American. And I want to lay out for you what I would think would be my description of it, and I want you to comment on it. Uh, okay, let's, let's hear it. I would submit that a typical evangelical in our country right now is influenced by a popular evangelical radio and television host who uh, generally teach that uh, basically that all of American society should be coerced to adopt Christian values of, for example, sexual morality or against drugs or whatever by the use of the state via the force of law and by us taking control over federal positions of power by uh, people willing to uh, enforce such values. Uh, another thing I think is that uh, uh, they would acknowledge the uh, imminent threat of enemies such as Islam, communism, Middle Eastern peoples. This is something that's much talked about and that we should take whatever measures necessary to enforce law and order at home and to prevent uh, their domestic infiltration in a preemptive fashion. Uh, another thing would be to provide uh, military and monetary support to Israel to protect America's blessing and facilitate Bible prophecy and uh, to preemptively invade other countries before they uh, plot against us uh, and spread our superior American-style democracy and values 
uh, coercively to diverse people groups via military martial law, occupation, and control, and to uh, stay loyal to the Republican Party as the official Christian party, uh, even when candidates have unchristian positions as a necessary defense against the ultimate enemy, the Democratic Party. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but that was just a laundry list I threw together. Do you agree with some or all of the characterizations I've made as far as just the, the typical characteristic, uh, and are there some others that, that I've missed? I generally agree with your characterization. As you were going down that list, though, I um, I had a little bit of a of a little bit of a hesitancy there because um, you've obviously done your homework real well. Uh, I am not sure that very many Christian evangelicals would would uh, be articulate in in agreeing with what you say there. I'm not sure that uh, the typical evangelical has really thought thought these positions through. Hmm. Um, but do their, do, do I, I their votes saying yeah. that um, <clears throat> that uh, it, it's it's sort of like a coherent agenda, but I think what's really going on is more that uh, people are responding to sound bites. I think um, I don't think that there has been uh, a really very deep evangelical thinking going on right now. Uh, you know, I hate to be uh, too, too broadly critical there, but. Um, well, I think I think in some respects you may you may be giving a little too much credit uh, to to the coherency of their thinking. Well, uh, but I, I, what I just cited to you. Wow, that's bold. What I just cited to you is what <laughs> yeah. is what uh, I hear the uh, evangelical Christian broadcasters say, uh-huh. and the people that the talking heads on TV, and when I have uh, private uh, groups, private meetings with other Christ- evangelical brothers and sisters, these are the kind of uh, Worldview that I hear them talk from that they accept. So, so you're saying that that others year round have a different view of things? No, I think I think that that you are correct in assessing the evangelical worldview. I just think um, maybe most evangelicals um, don't think very much about their worldview. Um, but the spokesman do for sure. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. the spokesman have, have thought about the worldview. So let's go with that. Okay. Um, I would say you covered it pretty well. I, I don't. I don't think I disagree with your characterization of uh, what the typical evangelical thinks. Well, at the same time, I recognize what you're saying is that people may not stop to articulate uh, the presumptions that they instinctively act on, uh, what they've heard, what they've been programmed into, what influences when they go into the election booth, or, or other positions that they have. But but the things that I mentioned are those the kind of things that they basically accept whether they stop and ponder them or not that guides their actions? I think so, I, and I think you're right. I think that people react on the basis of, of these very things that you're talking about. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think you've covered the ground pretty well, and uh, I can't think of anything right now that you have missed. Okay. Well, then I want, I want you to describe a little bit more about uh, uh, sort of the general philosophy where you have done your thinking in regards to this. And I've well, heard well, – um, I do think of something now that okay. you mentioned that I think has been missed. And I think um, um, I think that there is a, there is a very definite um, kind, of a, kind of a party militancy – uh, that uh, says that uh, this is basically what we think, and that if you do not think like this, um, you're uninformed, you're out, outside the pale, um, and we really, we really want to dismiss you. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there is an active um, 
It's even more than it's uh, even more than there's a there's a wall building that is going on. Aren't you looked at? Aren't you looked at with great suspicion? Hmm. It would be almost like the Red Scare kind of thing. Very similar to you know Alan Kay Alan Keys getting forcibly removed from a podium and dropped off in a rough neighborhood. What? Yeah, Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, didn't you hear? I thought no, uh, no. Yeah, he was he was at a debate and they took him and you know put him in a car and dropped him off across town. Now, that wasn't right. at the Constitution Party convention. No, not at I, the I didn't Constitution see that. Party. Yeah. That was no, 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 no. It wasn't at the Constitution Party. Yeah. I want to make that clear. Wow. Um, but I guess he was at a debate, and they just uh. said, you know, guess what? You're going, you know, what, 43rd Street and 2nd Avenue. Wow. Well, I, yeah. I, I almost feel like evangelical. Sometimes when you debate or even question some of these things, it's like you're appearing before the House of Un-American Activities, mm-hmm. where suddenly your motives are called into place. Do Do you really? You know, uh, except the whole Bible believing uh, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you question some of these, uh, many of these issues that uh, you know aren't directly book, chapter, and verse, but uh, there's immediate suspicion that comes on with you if you question any of these presumptions. I think that's right. I I would like to say that I think that this is occurring in um, in churches, uh, oh, yeah. m- maybe maybe in pulpits, uh, maybe in Sunday school classes. Maybe in uh, retreats, maybe in uh, informal get-togethers where we, you know, accountability groups and so forth, where we get the word out to people. Um, I, yeah, I think that's very much there. And in fact, I think that's as that's as serious a problem as things that are more in the public arena. I think what's going on in the evangelical church circles. Well, well, um, I, I want to focus our what, our what time we have on where you're coming from. Uh, your perspective and contrast. And I have heard you describe yourself in some ways as a Christian libertarian. That's right. Can can you explain what the general premises of that is? I know we have touched on it in shows in the past. We have a lot of new listeners, and we really need to do it rather succinctly. So if you can hit it, just right the nail on the head of what the the real uh, premise of that philosophy is and what its justification is in Scripture and how it would impact one's perspective. Uh, in position on the kinds of issues we face in the world today and, you know, in, the, in our families and social circles as well. Okay. First of all, I'm a Christian. I've been a, I've been a Christian since uh, I gave my life to Christ as a young child, and I have never walked away from that at all. Um, I've grown in my faith over the, over the past many years, uh, but uh, I did not come to a libertarian viewpoint as a Christian and and as a politically interested person until uh, the last few years. It's been sort of a slow journey for me. Uh, I began to realize about 20 years ago that my thinking was more libertarian than uh, some other Christians that I knew, but it's really been in the last five or six years that I have realized that that's where I am. So uh, I've been a Christian a long time. Uh, it's been pretty recently, relatively, that I've discovered that I was a libertarian. Mm. Um, and I discovered this, um, first of all, in, uh, in reading uh, some political writings and uh, understanding where some, where some libertarians were coming from. But the thing that really solidified it for me in the last few years is when I began to go back and really reread some uh, passages of Scripture that uh, started to have a, an increasing impact. On, on my thinking, because I, I began to see where I felt that um, some Christians seemed to be missing it. Uh, they were missing it theologically, and they were missing it politically. 
and um, so I went back and started to reexamine some scriptures. Uh, if you're interested, yeah, I, I was going to say, you can what, you can you share with yeah. us some of those scriptures? Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to give you three authors, and and three authors that agree uh, very very much on the matter of Christian liberty, mm-hmm. and these three authors are the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, and James Dust, and. Um, that's a, that's a pretty good stable of authors. Do you have any? Do you have any more prestigious people you could? Uh, play on? <laughs> yeah, got a yeah. big name. Right. Big name. Yeah. Um, you can find in the in the book of John uh, the very famous passage uh, where Jesus makes the very broad general statement. He says, "You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free." Um, and that that's a um, that's a powerful statement. If we go back and think about the circumstances in which Jesus said that, and he knew that this was going to be written down, he knew it was going to be studied, he knew it was going to be quoted, he knew it was going to be thought about throughout the entire future history of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got to think, what is he saying here? Why, why is he saying this in such stark terms that – you know, we we know that we're supposed to follow the truth, and, and Jesus has said many things about the value of the truth, and those who do not love the truth will get into trouble and so forth. And then he, he gives the positive on this, and he, and he gives, to my way of thinking, that the, the crucial thing about the truth is that in reality, in practicality, you know the truth, the truth will make you free. And so somehow this is, a, this is an objective of knowing the truth. And so freedom is, um, is, is the kind of thing that a Christian wants uh, because Christ wants it for him, uh, that at the end of the day, mm-hmm. after you know the truth, you're a free man. Uh, and that intrigued me. And, you know, I've known that passage all my life, but uh, it, it, didn't, it didn't hit me quite a, a, as it did more recently. The second person that I would quote is St. Paul in the book of Galatians where he uh, says, stand fast in the liberty uh, with which Christ has set us free and do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. And uh, then he jumps uh, a few more verses. He says, brethren, we have been called to liberty. Don't use liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Uh, but you call to liberty. Um, liberty is an objective. Uh, it's not merely a means to an end. It is a state of being mm. which, is, which is to be enjoyed uh, and, and to be preserved. And uh, there might be some assaults on your liberty, and if that were to happen, God forbid, you, you have to be wary. Now, so, now, he, now in the Christian world, liberty, liberty is not synonymous with rebellion. In other words, liberty does not mean you're intentionally trying to do things to flaunt your freedom to do things uh, and to stretch the boundaries of being in subjection no. to Christ, uh, many however, people might think that. However, it, it is <clears throat> it is liberty as uh, as God defines it, as Christ and the apostles define it, and so it, it means whatever they think it means. And uh, if if that got over into something that the world perceived as rebellion, uh, I would say uh, that's the world's problem. Uh, you know. Uh, Sure, I can see that. Christ, Christ and the apostles don't don't have to answer or apologize 
to the world and, mm-hmm. and, and make the case for their point of view. So I, I agree with you. The, the emphasis here is not on some kind of a rebellious attitude. It's, it's on your enjoyment of your personal liberty mm-hmm. as a child of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third person that I would quote is um, James the Just, who wrote <clears throat> the book of James, where he um, – this and this is, to me is perhaps one of the most interesting – uh, of the passages because of who James is and the circumstances under which he wrote. Uh, James was in the, uh, was in the uh, Jerusalem milieu, uh, rather close to the time of the destruction of the temple, uh, maybe within a decade of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he, he uses very broad terms in, uh, in his letter where he says, uh, you are to be judged by this law, the law of liberty. He says, look at it as if you were looking in a mirror. This, this is what you are to be judged by. And he was, he was specifically holding up the law of liberty in contrast to any other law, including the Mosaic law, including any other set of principles. He, he makes the case. And there are very few words in the New Testament that I have found that have been given such broad emphasis that we could state that they principles. And I would say we are told um, about the law of love. It is specifically called the law of love. And mm-hmm. every Christian, you know, hopefully understands the breadth of that. That, that, that means that love is generally applicable. Uh, it, it applies in all or almost all situations. That love is the is the guiding principle, and then he uses this same phrase, this law of liberty, and and that it struck me here it is right here in the scripture, and and here is a man who is uh, right in the middle of all kinds of situations, and he is making the case that a Christian is supposed to be guided by, and examine himself in the light of, am I walking in liberty? Uh, why is that important? Uh, I have to. I have to take a look at liberty for my own self and also for the sake of my brothers in Christ. Um, and when you look at it that way, this, this is not, um, this is not a, a personal license to some kind of hedonism or something. This is the way that true Christians must behave. <laughs> hmm. Okay, have I said enough? Oh, uh, wow, but, but that's I would challenging. give you those, those three uh, very emphatic statements. And sometimes people try to pit um, the teachings of Christ, uh, you know, against St. Paul or St. Paul against James or, or something like that. We've all, we've all heard those debates before. Yes. What's, what's interesting is even if you chose sides in that debate, which I do not, you find them all in absolute agreement uh, on, on the subject of love, and you find them in agreement on the subject of liberty. Hmm. Uh, wow. Wow. Well, and, yeah. and, and I guess, you know, when I think about some of my own examples, I just think about th- this whole discussion about whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols or, you know, if you know it. And the picture was given. Two brothers get together. One has a real conviction about it. One does not. The bottom line is one should not be coercing the other person. Mm-hmm. But one uh, chooses to live in liberty to choose to do what's best and well-meaning for, for everyone involved. But there's no coercion involved in that dynamic of what goes on. That is correct, uh, and I'm glad you brought up that word because um, polit- what would be called today political libertarian thinking is very strong on the idea that we do not use coercive force. Um, 
we persuade. And it's like um, it is mentioned in the scripture. It says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade man. If I, can, if I cannot persuade you by uh, either uh, my moral force or uh, my example or my ability to argue something carefully, uh, if I cannot persuade you by these non-coercive means, um, I have no business coercing you as a substitute for the, for the necessity to freely persuade. Um, that's that's in, in all respects a violation of, a, of another person's conscience, which is sacred. Uh, and then, of course, you know, in a, in a practical um, day-by-day sense where we are co- coercing and taking away people's rights, their liberties, their property, uh, we're fining them, we're imprisoning them. Um, yeah, we can't do that. Well, and basically what I think is is it acknowledges the rights each of us has as an individual created in the image of God and the rights and privileges that come with it and the fact that we're all equal before the cross of Christ and that the right of one to be coercive over the other just simply doesn't uh, hold water with where our nature and state is in creation. And I think, too, that um, if you look at the practic- the practical thing of... of when people have been forced into this thing or that thing, mm-hmm. uh, what you see, what you see again and again and again, is rebellion against right. against the authority that put them there. Right. And if it's if it's somebody uses Christianity to uh, uh, define that authority, you know, says, look, right. uh, God said not to do this, so nobody gets to do it. If you think there's no movement in history that has been successful the long haul, that has been coercive rather than mm-hmm. persuasive, Jesus Christ's message was persuasive uh, to other believers and, and to the world. It was not coercive. Uh, correct. E- yeah. Even in the modern, you take area, guys like Gandhi, uh, the civil rights movement, things like that. People do not have the right of coercion in many cases, and when coercion was tried, it usually backfired and created resentment. But the actions that were done through through persuasion and appealing to uh, uh, the decency in, in one person were, the, were the, the, the acts that actually had lasting staying power and influence on society. Yes. Um, in, in addition to that, though, let me say, you know, when we start talking about uh, not using coercive force, there, there are a lot of Christians who then think that, you know, if we don't use some, some kind of coercive force, mm-hmm. how are we going to really affect change in society when people who who uh, respond against us will use force. Uh, And so we have what you might call asymmetric warfare, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would say there is, and this this is something I'm dealing with right now, is that um, when we say, as as I do as a libertarian, that a coercive force is is prohibited, basically, Uh, perhaps some very exceptional case somebody can think of, but as a general rule, coercive force is prohibited, uh, then I have to say, all right, then how do I make a difference? And, and then I have to consider that I do have an obligation to use the moral forces that are at my disposal. Uh, I need to be in the business of maybe of advocacy, of, uh, <clears throat> of being more open, of, uh, of saying things that need to be said, uh, of not remaining silent where people have remained silent. Mm. So I'm finding I'm finding myself more compelled to uh, to use 
if if I believe these things and if I believe that liberty is important uh, and if I and if I'm not going to protect it by coercively imposing it upon others, then I must be busy about persuading people. Hmm. Uh, and that's something that I have come to rather late. Right. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but um, well, we've all wrestled with this. There. Yeah, we've right. wrestled with this together as we've done this. I, I think when you when you appeal to moral authority. You, it's not necessarily coerciveness, but it's strong persuasive in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms. Mm. And that's where real power is in the power of persuasion, not only by your example, but in the spiritual world. You can have tremendous power influence that you actually have a much more spiritual uh, persuasive power uh, when you appeal uh, to what we know God's rules are without physical coercion. And I would also say that... Uh, there is a corollary, a non-coercive corollary that is still very powerful, and that's the concept of resistance. You can be non-coercive in forcing yourself on other people, but it's completely fine to be resistant to the coerciveness of others, is it not? I think so, yes. Hmm. And uh, that can be very, very powerful, too. Uh, just because someone decides to be coercive does not mean you have to be coercive back, but you can easily be res resistive of their coercion over you. Right. I might, I may choose to be very passive if I think that that is what's indicated, or I can be, I, I can actively resist. Mm -hmm. I think both of those, both of those avenues are open to me. Without even appealing their right for their own self-determination of who who they want to be, it's it's basically a protection of your own self-determination, is what I'm referring to with the resistance. Right. Okay. Well, I I think that's a a, a basic premise and understanding. Uh, how does that impact um, your interaction with other people, uh, the, the nation as a whole, the people in your community, your church, families, etc.? Um, I find my thinking changing. I I find that um, if if I begin to realize that that coercive force is is almost never appropriate, and I look for other ways to influence people, I find myself compelled to find ways of walking in love. Uh, and so uh, so the question is, how, how do you walk in love? How do you walk in, uh, in truthfulness? How do, you, how do you articulate the truth? Um, so uh, I guess I'm, I'm at a point where I'm saying um, I'm, in, I'm in a kind of a transition in my own thinking about, about seeing what is really effective hmm. if uh, – if we can't if we can't kill people and make them come to our way of thinking, uh, then what what do I do? And uh, or, or even more subtler ways like use the force of law, uh, force of regulations, whatever we do to coercively break someone's will of their own self determination. Right. Um, I find myself becoming uh, more sympathetic to people in our society who have been victims of coercion. Uh, when I look at the at, at people who are imprisoned, and I find that many people are imprisoned uh, not because they have really broken the law of God, but because they have not conformed to somebody's idea of what they think they should do, uh, I'm reexamining that on a lot of levels. Uh, I'll be specific. Uh, Christians who have... Uh, who have freely gone out and imprisoned people for uh, minor drug offenses, uh, people who uh, who have who have allowed uh, people 
be arrested and even tortured and tormented because of basically political differences, because they're members of some uh, un undesired group, but they themselves are not guilty of any sort of a crime. When we allow that to happen, uh, boy, I'm reexamining that for myself. I can't speak for mm -hmm. other people, but I can speak for myself. So you're su saying that subtly has become part of the evangelical mindset. Uh, when we look down the road to the greater good we want for society, uh, we, we often overlook uh, the means that gets us to the end. And some of those things become part of our accepted practice, right? The, um, the, the history of the church has – the church has always struggled with this problem of, um, of, of being tempted to force people. Uh, you know, we all know of, of old stories of forced conversions. Uh, we know that they don't work. We know that um, uh, things have been done in the name of Christ that um, we're ashamed of. Uh, and it usually it usually has to do with some kind of a violent uh, forcing of people's behavior or beliefs, which obviously seemed good at the time. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm willing to say that uh, the people who did these things were probably well-meaning Christians, and mm -hmm. uh, it made sense. But with the eye of history, you look back on it and you say, uh, "This wasn't this wasn't going to work." Um, I would I would invoke C.S. Lewis a little bit here. Uh, I don't remember the exact work, but I remember that he said something along these lines. He was talking about the fact that people that get involved in revolutionary mo movements and they think that they're following some kind of an ideal, uh, and in the name of this ideal, they commit crimes. Uh, they murder, they torture, they imprison, and, and so forth, send people to concentration camps. Uh, and at the end of the day, his point is, is when we stand before God, we find out that the ideal that we fought for was false, but the crimes that we committed were real. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that strips away, you know, the, the, the false idealism is suddenly not there to protect us, and we mm -hmm. have to say, what have I done? Right. Um, I think there there are a lot of Christians who uh, who appreciate C.S. Lewis as I do, uh, and they do, they don't stop to think about the ramifications of some things that he says. Also, mm -hmm. well, I, I, if I could add my own two cents on this, as far as a practical application of what you're teaching, uh, I, I may have a certain position that I believe is based on Scripture or or what what God reveals, as I understand it. That is for the betterment of either me or my family or, or the community as a whole or society. And I may see another fellow citizen who's behaving in a different way or the different perspective. Even though I may strongly, strongly believe that the way that I espouse is the healthiest way for all parties involved, I have to defer to the right they have to have the equivalent right to me of self-determination as long as they don't enforce their desires on me. And so I have to I have to stand aside, and while I might be very persuasive with them, I have to acknowledge that they have an equal right to me to express themselves as long as they respect my rights. Isn't that quite different than what we often do many times when we talk about the, the evangelical agenda and how we want things to be accomplished? Yes, um, and, I, and I would like to say this is, this is not a, simply a political question or that we have differing viewpoints in the church. I think we can say that one point is, is wrong and one point is right. Hmm. Uh, That's bold. And, and the way I'm, I'm going to say this is um, if, if I were speaking as a libertarian, 
I would say that uh, libertarians uh, hold that that you are free and you should enjoy your freedom and you must respect the equal freedom of others. And that in all in all those areas where where you have freedom, you must you must respect the differing corresponding freedom of the other person. Now, when I say it that way, it sounds like well, that's a political statement that you're making and and I I can either join your party or not join your party, but that's really not the issue to me. The issue to me is this is actually a restatement of what Christ said specifically in the golden rule. And Christians always have looked at the golden rule and said he was saying something special here that we all need to take careful note of. That's why we call it the golden rule. And that is whatever you would that men would do to you, you do to them likewise. In other words, we have a Christian spiritual obligation always to put ourselves in the other guy's shoes. We must. Right. Uh, if we're not doing that, we're not doing our job. Mm-hmm. Well, if I could give an example of that, uh, in just thinking about if if we went to the end game of the current agenda where we're heading as evangelicals, and, and let me reiterate further, and you tell me if I put words in your mouth here, uh, Robert, um, people might jump to conclusions here because what we're talking about is, can be so radically different than, than the common uh, uh, discussion that you'll hear on your typical evangelical Christian talk radio show is that we may, uh, they may think that we're uh, some kind of Marxist uh, liberation theology type person or, or something where we really have a lot of questions about the Bible. I mean, you you have a full faith and confidence in the entire revelation of God's word, correct? Absolutely. And you 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 by any other measure, in uh, whether it's preaching the word from the pulpit or teaching Bible to young people or whatever. You have taught what you understand to be the orthodox word of God that has been carried from the apostles through the ages, correct? That is correct. And, and you uh, find this is completely consistent uh, with that teaching of, of regular Bible-believing orthodox Christianity. I, I, find, I find it consistent, yes, with, with what I find in the word, which I believe is inspired, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's what we need. Uh, Right. To- I, I'm not sure how how I should say that, but yes, the totality uh, word of God. It, it, this this is not uh, some kind of a fringe offshoot that cha- takes some part of the Bible to the exclusion of other. This is a, something that is in harmony with the entirety of God's word. I think it. I think it is, and I think you know the more I have studied uh, the Gospels, the more I have studied the letters of of the Apostle Paul. Um, I'm finding the Apostle Paul is actually pretty clear on this subject uh, mm. you know i i have to i don't think i'm coming up with anything new i think i am very slowly and very tardily coming to something that uh has been sitting there in the bible all the time mm-hmm. and uh mm. it's 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 been overlooked but there it is um i find it in all of the apostle paul's writings uh and as i say you also find it in james you find it in peter um the, the commands to uh, virtue, uh, things that are honorable in the sight of all men. Uh, don't judge a man on the basis of uh, small things. Don't strain at the gnat and swallow the camel. Mm-hmm. Uh, these kinds of injunctions are mm-hmm. all over well, in, the, in, in, the, in, the in book, Holy Scripture. In the book of Acts, we had the Council of Jerusalem. We had the apostles there. 
that had to be confronted with, with Gentiles coming into their fold. Now, this is yep. within the body of Christ. The body of Christ in the kingdom of God has a whole separate different set of rules from how we interact with other people outside the circle. So, I mean, there there can be additional criteria within the body of Christ because it's a voluntary association. Right. We volunteer to accept the lordship of Christ. But yep. even within that, when they were brought into the fold in the discussion, here you have a bunch of Jews who've been loyally obeying every jot and tittle of the law, doing all of the feasts and the dietary laws, and they're asked, what should we do with these Gentiles in our fold? What should we expect of them? We have all these expectations. And after careful deliberation, they said, eh, there's just one or two things we need them to do. Why saddle them up with everything else that we have a hard time obeying ourselves? So a, pre- a precedent was established to allow them to use self-determination, even within the kingdom of God, under the lordship of the kingship of Christ. What this really, what this really comes down to is the, the crucial Christian question, and that is the force of the law can never do what the power of Christ can do in transforming human nature. The, the transforming of human nature is something that has that can only successfully be done by the power of Christ. It's not going to be done by the power of the law. Never has been, never will be. Now, Robert, I actually have a question. All right. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Phineas, in his zeal, runs through another Israelite who is uh, taken taken a foreigner for a wife, I believe. I believe that's correct. Um, with have, the Midianites, women, yes, yeah, yeah. Balaam sent them off. Yeah, he ran off with one of the one of the foreign women, and uh, um, you know, like in his like like I said, in his zeal, he he runs the guy through with a with a spear. Uh, I wonder if you would comment on that based on our earlier hypothesis and talk about Christian Christian liberty. Um, yes, um, that story is a is a is an interesting one, and. Uh, and Phineas was certainly rewarded for what he had done mm-hmm. because of his zeal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read that passage of Scripture, I think, with proper New Testament understanding. <clears throat> these things were written for our learning, not necessarily that we are to repeat these things, uh, but that we are to learn from the history of these people. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that the purpose of the law was to help us to understand how sinful sin is, um, and, it, and it is to teach us and instruct us in this. And so when I read a story like that, I, I think I, I hope I come away understanding that, that sin and, and other sins are mm. extremely offensive to God. But I don't take that to mean that uh, my response has to be the same as that in dealing with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and I think all Christians basically agree um, that that is so. So um, I take the I take story as instruction uh, in the sinfulness of sin, uh, without feeling that this gives me an obligation or even a permission to uh, to perform that kind of law enforcement on people. Well, Robert, can I add an extra two cents here from my, liber- my burgeoning libertarian hat that you've helped me uh, sew myself? As I understand it, the Old Testament, what puts it in a little different state from where we where we are we live under grace, is that they made a contract with God, a covenant with God. It was a voluntary contract. Everyone there in Israel signed on to it together. 
part of it were certain behaviors as part of that contract. God would do certain things, and they would not uh, fornicate. They would not do other kind of things. There was a priesthood that was established by mutual consent in the contract that was sort of the enforcer to make sure that they did their end of the bargain on their contract. When that when that fornication went on that Phineas saw, that was counter to an agreement that they were already freely established with God. They were covenant breakers with that with that particular agreement they had made. The the priesthood was empowered to be able to deal with this, to be able to resolve their parties that had done this contract with God. So under that relationship they had, uh, they had had in a willful association that was broken. And that judgment was rightly meted when that was broken. Yes. Hmm. So I, I, I see this as a different situation. They all came together, agreed to terms. They have to mutually agree to it as an entity uh, to this. And there was a means established by which they would agree to it. And basically those parties just did what they needed to do to meet the agreement with God that was freely established. Interesting. Yes. Uh, whereas uh, the nature of our covenant with God under the covenant of grace is much, much different. Uh, and we are not empowered individually to go uh, do this kind of enforcement one on the other. Uh, the, the, under the body of Christ, we have a relationship to to uh, be persuasive. Uh, we even have uh, means by which under the worst case situations, we can control our voluntary association with each other. By, by uh, if everything else fails and it's like, extremely harmful to the body and it's really hurting the actual free will of others due to someone's uh, excessive use of their free will in a harmful way to actually distance yourself from these people. Not that you take any kind of physical retribution on them, but to isolate yourself as a last step uh, to maintain the well-being of the community. Hmm. But that's a completely different nature than what we're talking about of the agreement that was freely established in the Old Testament. Is that not true? That's true. I, I would like to focus it down and say this. In Jeremiah 31, 31, where the new covenant is prophesied, and God says quite specifically, when I establish the new covenant, it will not be like the old covenant, uh, which was broken. He says, I will, in that day, I will write my law on their hearts, and every man will know me from the least to the greatest. Uh, that is a clear statement of God that under the new covenant, the the direct relationship is between every man and God himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that compels a mutual respect. It absolutely, in my mind, in my mind, it compels a mutual respect among Christians. I, I must acknowledge that if the new covenant has come into existence in you, and the new covenant has come into existence in me, that God has written his law on my heart, and he has written his law on yours. And I have to respect that fact. And I also know from the example that Christ gives to the apostles that uh, his, his personal will in your life is going to take different directions and different forms. Christ is going to call St. Thomas to go to India, and has certain experiences, and Christ is going to call St. Peter to stay in Jerusalem for a while, and he's going to call St. Andrew to go do whatever it was he did. And we're told uh, not to worry uh, about what Christ's will is for the other brother. Mm -hmm. That's between him and them. 
Right, mm. which is what Jesus told uh, Peter regarding uh, John, whether John yes. will be alive, whether he returned or not. This requires the evangelical to believe that God is actually working in people's lives. And and I would say uh, a thing that concerns me about evangelicals is that often they behave as if that God has written a new law in the Bible, which we are supposed to uh, enforce um, without understanding the dimension that, he, yes, he has given us his word, and the, and the Bible and the New Testament are absolutely correct, uh, and, and so let's hear what they're saying, and what the, what the Bible is saying and what the New Testament is saying over and over again is that God gives you personal liberty, and he gives you personal direction. So, amen. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Well, now, as I understand it, uh, even under this new covenant, within the body of Christ, which are a group of people who have made a willful association together, as well as with Christ, we still do not have the right of coercion over each other. We can be persuasive uh, if if our differences are so severe that the actions of one is being considered harmful to the other, as I mentioned earlier. We, we have the right as a last state of disassociation as far as uh, proximity. We still may be part of the body of Christ together, but if it's becoming harmful, harmful because of our uh, proximity to each other and we've not found a way to operate mutual respect, we consider harm, we can do that as a last step, but it's still not coercive. If, if we operate on that under those who are willfully associated together in the body of the Christ, uh, where no coercion is allowed, heaven forbid that we would push our coercion on people who are outside of that willful association of the body of Christ, i.e. those in society who are not part of the church. We definitely do not have any kind of right coercively for other people to take on the yoke of Christ and what that demands, no matter how light it is, no matter how good it is. We, we do not have the right, we have not been given the right to coerce that on others outside of those who have not willingly taken that yoke on themselves, correct? Uh, I'm not sure what your audience would think about that, but I certainly agree with what you're saying. Uh, well, that relates to the next question I want to ask you. Because right. this relates to what, what would be the positives or negatives of a theocracy. That word is often not used in a lot, but... The, the main um, evangelical activist, uh, particularly in the political area, and I won't say all of them, but a lot of the most vocal ones, the ones that are that are uh, the most visible, uh, are working toward something that you could call a theocracy or what their preference would be. Um, when I have tried to explain to others about the dangers of a theocracy, as, as a Bible-believing Christian that ultimately would like everyone to come under subjection to Christ uh, voluntarily, but... Uh, as a theocracy on earth, uh, in a practical nature, I have pointed out uh, the ramifications. Uh, if Just as an example, if a God-fearing and devout Seventh-day Adventist were elected president, just as a given, and uh, were allowed to impress his sincere theological beliefs upon our citizens, uh, for example, to honor God by forcing Saturday worship experience while abolishing, let's say, Sunday worship in America, uh, in other words, devout people uh, uh, honoring God by forcing what they deem as godly actions on our nation's people can appear to be quite attractive. You know, as this person would be doing what they thought in their conscience was in the best interest of other people and God in, in enforcing by law Saturday worship versus Sunday. And that all looks quite attractive unless you're on the outside looking in. Uh, in this case, if you're one that, that believed in Sunday worship. 
So what I'm trying to say is that when the shoe's on the other foot uh, and you believe in God-fearing people making the shots, but when those people have different convictions than you, it's a whole different story. C- can you do a better job of explaining the dangers of using coercive force of the state to accomplish kingdom objectives, uh, and how can we properly classify the, the proper duties of the state and the kingdom of God uh, business to the church? Well, um, I think you've given a really good example, and um, it's something that evangelical Christians ought to seriously consider. It, it's a well, it's a well-chosen example that should get us all thinking. Uh, where a person might um, <clears throat> might uh, differ and 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 want a stronger example is they they might say, well, this is this is a matter of uh, the church um, disagreeing with itself about certain worship forms. But certainly we have a, an obligation to enforce the moral law. Uh, and so they, they might say, uh, although we don't believe that, uh, this, this president should enforce his, uh, worship forms, uh, don't we all agree that we should all enforce the moral law? Uh, and the answer there is, uh, actually, yes, of course, the, the moral law does need to be Enforced. Uh, the question is, though, what is the moral law? Uh, and and even in the enforcement of the moral law, we we desire that the moral law, as much as possible, will enforce itself through the experience of the people. Um, so. Um, so we have to we have to be careful here um, because what we tend to do is we tend to extend the moral law. Um, if we if we actually go back to Christian experience, you find that uh, Christian experience in the New Testament was that uh, they did not find it necessary to enforce even the moral law, let's say the moral law of Moses, on society. There was uh, obviously a desire to to live well in the world, and obedience to the moral law is um, is is encouraged. But uh, take the case of um, of uh, say a Greek who is um, decides he's going to give up certain Greek experiences. Uh, let's say he has a predilection to homosexuality or something like this, and he becomes a Christian. Uh, well then, under under Christian doctrine, uh, he is going to forsake that, and he is going to forsake that because of some transforming experience that has occurred in his life. Uh, but beyond that, uh, we we're not out here making crusades uh, to clean out the gymnasiums, you know, and to shut down the public baths and so forth. Um, so uh, what I'm saying is, uh, I think uh, the the history of Christian experience has been Christians have not felt that they they had a, a, a very strong obligation to enforce even the moral law that much on outsiders. I realize I'm getting into a kind of a strange gray area here, but uh, let's look at it for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, fact that you, you may not want to push that any farther. Their, their, their regime is within those who have voluntarily associated with them, that is the church. Right. And, and, but outside of that, they're still called to be salt and light. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean they're supposed to cram salt in somebody's mouth or shine a flashlight in their eyes. 
Right. But they are to be there to be an example of, of moral good uh, and, and actually uh, to, to not make the other mistake, uh, and we'll talk about this later, they're, they're also not supposed to go hide themselves up on a hill and take them out of interacting and actually being that salt and light to members of society as well too, correct? Um, you know, Christians have differed about that. I Some Christians felt that the, the best way to preserve salt and light was to put it in a monastery, and I really don't object to that. Uh, if that was their calling before God, uh, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, other Christians stayed out and were salt and light in the world, and perhaps that was an acceptable division of labor. Okay. Mm. Well, uh, the, the, the only thing I say is to, to obey the Great Commission uh, requires. Now, for, for the body as a whole... Uh, we have some that stay in universities and teach. We have others uh, that go out in the marketplace and work. And within the body of Christ, uh, we have different roles in different places for people in the body. So heaven forbid we would judge one other person on what the Lord lays on their heart, on their role. But I, I'm saying right. as, as a whole, um, the um, it, it does not relieve us of a potential role from an activist state of trying to be a blessing to the people in our communities even though we don't have the right to coercively force them to do certain things. That's correct. And and uh, let me also say, I, I, a Christian who is called to become a police officer or other peace officer in the, in the world, um, certainly they, ha- they have a right to participate in the government and uh, do, do what needs to be done. Um, I think a, a Christian needs to be as sensitive as any other citizen that uh, that they respect the the inherent liberties of the people. Uh, they don't have they don't have uh, they they bear the sword, but they must bear the sword with uh, forbearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do not have they do not have a license to use the sword inappropriately, and they do not have a right to coerce behavior. Uh, just because they don't happen to like it, there had there had better be um, there had better be a, a a what I would call a natural law reason for why they do what they mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the early example I gave in this question here before we move on is the fact that if we try to push a theocracy in our zeal to bless people in our nation, uh, and and again, I think much of the activist role can be very good and helpful to society, particularly when it comes to preserving life and and other actions like this. But we better be careful when we get what we want because when other people take over, you can even see this in a local church. You can see a a movement within a church um, that sort of takes over and runs things, and then suddenly you find people in charge that the original founders, again, are on the outside looking in. And I think uh, a theocracy is no different in terms of people better be careful on what they set up uh, to see if it actually stays on course with the ideals. C.S. Lewis actually made that position. Um, He was asked to become part of a uh, basically a a political party in England. I remember that. They were going to start a Christian party of some sort. Right, and and they wanted him to be – they knew that, you know, he would be a headliner that would really get things. And and, and something to the effect, he said, was that basically he knew that in time – he would be one that would be on the outside of what their agenda was. And I think that was very, very wise uh, for him to to see that. Um, Moving on in our discussion, um, what has your study of American and world history recently uh, taught you about the actions of our nation in world history uh, and how well they represented what we envision 
as American and Christian ideals, uh, as we understand them now and, and idealize them, and how our leaders in politics, the media, and even church bodies have been honest brokers with the American public. Have you had some general things you've seen from some case histories? Um, you asked me a question that's been very much on my mind recently. Uh, here I have to talk about my own background. Uh, I studied history. I majored in history with the view to becoming a history teacher. So that is different than saying I, I, I did it with a view to becoming a historian. And I, and I very much respect historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had only one course in my history major uh, in which I was actually taking the role of writing original history and, and performing the due diligence that a historian must do. So as a, as a history major, I was, I was interested really in the story of history. Uh, what was going on, great men, biography, forces of history, and so forth, the, the various schools of thought mm-hmm. and how you teach history. And I have to I have to say when I look back on that, and, and I'm not criticizing my professors; they were fine men. Um, but basically, very little, uh, even that they taught the college level, was able to um, affect my rather uh, mythical view of American history, which is that uh, you know American America history is that we are a nation that are specially chosen by God. And that, uh, as such, uh, God is leading us, you know, triumphantly from one success to another. Mm. Uh, and that's, that is, uh, that's a nice thing to think, and it's something that we would like to wish. And, you know, I, I personally believe that America has a, a purpose and a destiny. Uh, but that's a long way from saying that, uh, what has happened in our country has been, uh, uniformly or even majorly good um, and because we have taught a kind of history that says uh, America is is basically all right and it is getting uh, increasingly better um, we have a way of going back and looking at some rather serious national weaknesses and sins uh, with too calm an eye and uh, therefore we think that since our history you know has been this good experience that what is happening now is all working together for good uh, because somehow America loves the Lord and so everything is going to work out and be called according to his purpose. Mm-hmm. And that is not the whole truth. And uh, it has been shocking to me to go back into history and to try to reexamine some things. Mm-hmm. And so I am very sympathetic with my fellow Christians who struggle with the same thing. Uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, whether I'm answering your original question or not, but well, this is I just something that's been on my mind. I'm just asking for instances. I know some of the books that you've been reading um, give a little different, some people call it revisionist view of some of our actions, whether it be some of the early wars that we fought, the reason we got into them, uh, the imperialism of America at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and beyond, uh, what were the motives of some of these groups, wh- how faithful our media was in telling us what was really going on, right up to recent years, uh, even crisis events in our country like uh, the Kennedy assassination, assassination or 911 or things like this. Um, have you gotten a general consensus from some of those? And you can give some examples if you want 
of how has it changed your view at all of um, how our country has lived up to what we consider these American ideals? Very definitely. I can, in answering your question, I can either go a controversial or a non-controversial way. And I think I will choose the non-controversial way to make my point. When I went back and really re-examined World War One, um, I, to me, World War One was just a chapter in history. Uh, I knew the dates. I knew the battles. Uh, I knew who was president. I knew the names of the diplomats and so forth. Uh, and that was the, that was the basic scenario that I had. And going back and looking at the causes and the origins of World War One, uh, I found myself horrified. Uh, World War One was was a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, that was it, it wasn't a, it was a blunder. It was intentional. It was a it mm. was a seduction. It was a seduction of the American people into a war that was completely misguided from the start. And uh, appeals were made to American idealism, and I'm sure that the boys who signed up uh, to to go fight in World War I uh, were just convinced of the rightness of their cause. But when you go back and you find the, the origins where this was set up uh, in order to pay war debts, it was in order to... Uh, Enrich armaments manufacturers. That the whole setup of World War One was um, was orchestrated years in advance. When you read that efforts on on the parts of good men on both sides after the initial bloodletting of 1914, where they were uh, they were pleading with each other, we need to stop this and go back to the status quo ante. And uh, the bankers who were who were uh, influential said, no, you owe us the money and you'll keep on fighting. Now, that's my paraphrase. Uh, you know, uh, don't take that as a literal quote, but I'm giving you the gist of what was going on in World War One, And you realize that this is, this is totally at variance with uh, the noble phraseology of the war to end wars and uh, making the world safe for democracy and the 14 points and so forth, and that we're told sort of legitimized this horrific bloodletting and you go back and you find this was this was a seduction this was a this is something that was foisted on the american people by uh strong powers within our government uh yeah you better change my thinking yeah. now i i bring that up because none of us has a dog in that hunt anymore uh these were perhaps our great grandfathers and so forth and, and nobody has a, a recent wound where they can think about a loved one who's lost in that war. When you move it forward to more modern situations, uh, I, I sympathize with people who do not want to think that their government is capable of betraying them. But I urge them, I plead with them to go back and look carefully at American history and see how many lives of Americans were sacrificed for less than noble reasons, because somebody had something to gain. Usually it was as simple as money. Sometimes it was other modes of power, but usually it was money. And and I would submit that if one wants to really understand what's going on today, invest some time in reading a good, diverse variety of history books, not history textbooks that have been approved by some school board yeah. somewhere, but, but right. good, strong historian history books 
uh, and you will find amazing things. Uh, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here because with your history credentials, but I think it's been pretty well established by a number of historians that early events like, for example, the Spanish-American War, uh, they've now established that it was not Spain. It was some of our own agents that blew up the main. Uh, they got things going in that direction. Um, that uh, it was largely uh, American capital that built up uh, Hitler's war machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that well, actually were able to foment a lot of these kind of things. I'm not trying to get too conspiratorial. It's just these are the things that well, historians have been well, well sure, and even you can even go go with uh, um, writer John Buchanan, who uncovered a bunch of documents that proves and slams the door shut on the on the uh, the fact. That uh, Prescott Bush, of all people, was laundering money for Fritz Thyssen. Uh, mm-hmm. Who's Fritz Thyssen? Well, Thyssen Steel yeah. was the primary the the primary contributor to the Nazi War Party. Mm-hmm. And here yes. and right. here's the grandfather of our current president laundering money for him. Right, and we have uh, exactly, and and now I think the historians have pretty well established that both. Uh, uh, um, uh, who's our, who was the gentleman uh, in, in England? Uh, um, at World War II, he just blanked out here on me. Churchill, Churchill, and uh, FDR. <laughs> I think I heard of the yeah. man. But both Churchill yeah. and FDR were well aware of what was transpiring regarding Pearl Harbor, and, and now the historians have very tightly established that that information was purposely kept really? from key people at Pearl Harbor mm. uh, yeah. for this. So you see a continuing theme over and over again. Uh, that's no longer just some kind of internet rumor conspiracy, but well-established uh, papers and documents well-established, and this will actually change your worldview of how you're seeing things going on right now. I think it does. Um, yeah, I agree okay. with you. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll move on from here and, and just uh, suggest that people look forward and before sure. they they look take... into the USS Liberty incident, look into the Gulf of Tonkin. I mean, that's been... Well, we covered on this show the, the NSA, yeah. who just released recently documents that absolutely confirmed what everybody understood, that the Gulf of Tonkin Completely was a total fabricated. fabrication. Completely fabricated. Which was the justification for going into Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And we have 50,000 or more men paid their lives, many more injured, over something that was a fabrication foisted upon Congress and the people. Yes. Yes, and I, and I find that personally horrifying. Uh, I was a young college student in those days. And this was a very live question, uh, I mean, about the, whether the Vietnam War was, um, you know, appropriate or not. And people who had misgivings about the Vietnam War were demonized as being traitors. And at the same time, uh, an appeal was made to the genuine idealism and patriotism and the genuine love of country that was there uh, on the part of most youngsters in my generation, and they were shipped off to Vietnam under false pretenses. I find that, I find that staggeringly awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you're right. It's, it's an exploitation of people's love of country. That's right. A very sincere we, and noble love of country. That we is we should. Right. We love our country. We want the best for it. If our country is being, honestly, if it's being attacked, we want to defend it. And and for the people of America to have been um, betrayed uh, by agents of, of the federal government who knew what they were doing uh, to draw us into a war, um, it's terrible. I, words fail me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I guess to, to, to close this aspect, what, what I'd like people to keep in mind 
look at that track record when when you hear things from our media today uh, right now we're being sold something regarding a financial package that is being sold hard by media outlets being sold hard by uh, leaders of various parts of the government and it's not a republican thing it's not a democrat thing it's a yep. those in power thing uh high level corporate interests are, are doing it and you suddenly, when you look in history, you suddenly interpret what's happening now around us and recognize when, you, when you've got a con game being sold to you, history reveals things to be what they are. Yes, and there's a – I don't like to deal in slogans and labels, but here's, here's a label that might be useful. Um, a generation ago, there was an understanding that there actually existed in this country what was loosely called the Anglo-American establishment. And people had a general understanding of what that was. Um, and I think that that would be useful to describe what we're seeing here. Um, if people can understand it, that, that this is just a loose generalization. Uh, but it's there. It is mm -hmm. real. Uh, and, and people think that when you talk like this, you're talking about uh, conspiracy theory. Not at all. Uh, let's talk about the British Empire. Was the, was the, is the British Empire a conspiracy theory? No. <laughs> it's, it's a fact. Uh, did the British Empire uh, indulge in all sorts of underhanded behavior? Did they do lots of things in the dark? Yes. This is a matter of sober history. It is unpleasant. Uh, it's it's difficult to read. It's it's difficult to to uh, accept. But there it is. Uh, this isn't theory. This is this is the way nations have behaved. This is the way they do behave. Uh, hmm. They betray people. Mm -hmm. Innocent people are are killed retail wholesale uh, in order to advance somebody's agenda. If public publics are lied to, citizens are lied to on a regular basis, not just our government. Uh, it's a time-honored tradition, and, and heaven forbid if we think suddenly human nature has changed and they operate in a different fashion. You know, I had a, a wonderful uh, Christian woman today tell me who recognized all these things, and she stopped at a certain point and said, you know, I hear about these other kind of dark things that are going on in Seattle, and she says, I cannot look into it any further. I just can't go there. You know, yes. I can't I can't deal with the fact that some of these things may be true, and I find that a common position. And what I do yeah. is I charge uh, other convicted members of the body of Christ to take it upon themselves to go there. You know, there are things in the body that are not pleasant to do, whether it's dealing with people under spiritual warfare or demonic activity or dealing with other illnesses, uh, discernment ministries. There are all sorts of things in the Bible that is the work nobody wants to do. It, that's just like any army. Uh, any army has unsavory tasks that are required, even if they're noble. And, right. and this is one of these things that watchmen in our church have a responsibility to go there. And, and I would suggest that if you don't know where to start, uh, one thing is you can listen to shows like ours and pick up these topics. There have been some men who have been faithful in gathering this information. Uh, one is Dr. Stan Monteith at RadioLiberty.com. Yeah, he is a yeah. devout Christian. He has spent decades, devoted his life. 
uh, away from a lucrative career to compiling this information has most of it free at his website get you started there are some people that are even more controversial but whose data is very useful and instructive people like alex jones mm-hmm. at infowars.com but the list goes on and on many people many of these gentlemen are older people and you know people as well robert uh, yep. were older gentlemen who, who who got a lot of criticism because they were pointing out this information men that you know that now are becoming vindicated and people are finally understanding that they were right all along and I say yeah. it behooves our Christian listeners to take it upon themselves, uh, as we've said, uh, quit drinking the Kool-Aid and start drinking the coffee. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. uh, coffee in the sense of it's time to wake up. It's got to wake and, up and uh, smell the coffee. And, that is right. And uh, it, this is a, a day, like they say in the last days, it's time for sober thinking and to walk circumspectly. And in terms of our worldview, we we need to start doing that. And, and related to that, um, why do you think? Uh, let, let, let me put something in on, on this. Uh, and this doesn't this does not assault our Christian faith. It clarifies it. Exactly. Um, uh, liars liars should be exposed. Liars sh- should not be allowed to prevail in the body of Christ. Liars should not be allowed to prevail in government. Men of men who are uh, seducers um, of the people, uh, who lead people off into uh, falsehoods of all sorts, and particularly of uh, you know falsehoods with terrible consequences, where lives of people are are lost. Uh, this this doesn't diminish our Christian faith. It clarifies it. It helps us be about the business of the master. Um, mm. Exactly. This is this is what the church needs to be doing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's tough. It requires courage. It requires study. It requires due diligence. It requires lots of things. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Well, even if you if you think about uh, the early church fathers, uh, the first the apostles and the other church fathers, that's usually what got them into hot water, uh, literally and figuratively. Uh, is when they exposed fraud going on in their communities, whether it was um, fortune tellers that were really had demonic spirits and they were making money on it, or or, or there were other activities where people were being exploited, and they pointed out in their community, and next thing you know, they got the wrath, just like was it Paul and Silas that uh, stopped the uh, local soothsayer. Um, That's what innately what people do that follow Christ do. Uh, they, They acknowledge... When, when there is an atmosphere of lying and falsehood, and, and shine the light. And it creates quite a stir. Right. Uh, to, to, to move on uh, to this, why do you think our politicians, our media outlets, and even church leaders uh, emphasize the perpetual imminent dangers of enemies surrounding us by using terms like Islamofascist and similar terms like this and the war on terror and feed the paranoia of the public? What, what do you think could be their agenda in doing this? It's a pretty pretty uniform message coming out. Well, by the fact that you've raised the question, I think you're you're almost pointing to an answer here. Um, there are there are people out there who really believe that there's such a thing as an Islamo fascist. Uh, there is no, <laughs> there is no Islamo fascist party. There is no Islamo fascist subversive group. This is a label that has been slapped on people, and it's typically used to demonize people. It's very general. Uh, underneath this, we can capture um, 
any Muslim that we don't trust by using the word Islamo, and then by saying fascist, we can attach them to whatever the evils were of uh, Hitler and Mussolini and any other fascists we can think of. And so we draw a very black ring around a group of people, and uh, it's very effective as a label. And if people do label thinking, uh, you know, the, 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 the deed's been done. Uh, when we start seeing labels like this thrown around, uh, a good Christian ought to immediately say, whoa, why am I being talked to like this? Why, why am I buying this? Uh, this is, you know, this, this is Kool-Aid when people start talking like this. Mm-hmm. They're talking Kool-Aid. They're not talking truth. Um, the truth, the truth is not that slick and smooth. Hmm. Um, is it very similar to what we look back in history when we see whether like a, a, a Japanese person that has the big teeth and the in the thick eyeglasses, you know, right before World War II, or 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 they've even done it to Judaism with characters with the caricatures. Right. It's a caricature, and and what we're talking about is a verbal caricature. Uh, when they do that to try to invoke hatred and to invoke the public to get behind certain things that are being sold to them. Well, and I think you you see, you know, more salient to right now, you're seeing that a lot with our bailout, what's going on. They're saying, you need to pass this right now. It's just, it's got to be done or there's or there's catastrophe. It's got to happen. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when you watch the 24-hour news shows, you don't know when the commercials end and the commercials begin. Because when it's on the live news, it's just a different kind of commercial. You're being sold a different product. Well, at least with the commercials, you know that something's being sold. At least they're being upfront and <laughs> it's selling like, look, you. We're trying to sell you that it's dishwasher detergent. But, but it's a nonstop sell job, whether it's Wall Street, mm-hmm. Madison Avenue, or some uh, yes. some other force. Uh, Absolutely, uh, that's there. I think it may be time now just to pick on this word Islamofascist, but there are other labels we could talk about as right. well. Just an example. <laughs> I, but as an example, I think it's maybe time to start confronting uh, Christian writers and media people and, uh, and hopefully other writers and media people and say, you know, when you use a word like that, um, I doubt you. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why are you not telling me the real truth? Why are you using this uh, catchphrase? Uh, it sounds like uh, some kind of a sound bite you get on talk radio uh, when we're talking about serious issues. If you want me, if you want me to take you seriously, then speak to me seriously. And if people are willing just to throw around labels uh, as, as like this, uh, it's time to call them on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it really is. Um, we've had we've had too much of name calling in the church where. Uh, there, there's a whole sectors of the um, of the church who think that um, that the word Democrat uh, means devil, uh, and they think that the word Republican means saint. Um, this has got to change. Okay, mm-hmm. um, it's false for, for for the simple reason that it's false, uh, and it demonizes people and it sanctifies mm-hmm. people who do not deserve to be demonized and sanctified. And uh, Christians need to be dealing in truth and not just Mm. slinging lies at each other. 
it's a it's a stumbling block to really understand what's going on. Because if I demonize this person and been made an enemy, I'm less likely to understand the perspective and what motivates them to take their position, to understand what actions I or people on quote my side have done that have influenced their position, and it's an impediment to ever come to any kind of peaceful resolution with other people well, when we've done this. This, is act, this actually goes to something I think I mentioned a couple of months ago. Uh, the key thing that I see in between people who are growing in, growing in Christ and the Holy Spirit and people who are not and treated as something different uh, is, is the nature of, I guess I called it, other-centeredness. Right. Mm -hmm. In a in the sense that, you know, somebody who's really growing in Christ tends to be really, really, really other centered uh, and somebody who's not tends to be self-centered. And I think you're kind of seeing that here somewhat. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Well, if I could broaden. I'm sorry. Go ahead. If I can broaden this topic into a little bit larger sphere, Uh, the war on terror has been this this whole term has been used as a tool uh, to accomplish the suspension of key constitutional protections such as habeas corpus and posse comitatus, uh, permitting uncharged people to waste away for years at Guantanamo Bay or on floating prison ships, uh, the collecting of exhaustive surveillance data of every American citizen, including mm-hmm. us here, uh, restricting the use of media by free and independent sources like the Internet, and militarizing the police uh, in support of frequent raids on suspects or even of those just with unconventional lifestyles without charges. Why should the evangelical Christian be concerned about this? Uh, let me save, save your question. Why should we be concerned? Uh, maybe I'll just say why I'm concerned. When we start using this label, War on Terror, okay, this this deals with a weakness in common thinking uh and and in common thinking we tend to think with a kind of a rough logic and and our thinking is typically uh if a then b if b then c and we don't we don't normally go back and we don't scrutinize the a and we don't scrutinize the B, and we don't scrutinize the C. And media people, uh, you know, and leaders sort of know this. And so, if they can, if they can kind of throw a ring around A, they can move you rather quickly to B and C. Hmm. Because because going back and checking out A, B, and C is is oftentimes beyond people's immediate ability. Uh, you can't go back and check sources and so forth. Uh, and so we're sort of at the mercy of whoever is talking right now. When you start thinking about the fact that war on terror, uh, you realize that this is a label that, uh, that can't possibly mean what it says. We, we cannot have a war on terror. Okay. And the fact that this label has gotten currency uh, causes me to raise serious questions about the intellectual integrity of anybody who uses it. And, and I mean that all the way wow. to the top. That's bold. If, the, if, if the president is, if the president is saying global war on terror, and that's the best he can do 
articulate what his aims are, he is not thinking very well. And people who continue to repeat this slogan need to go back and think because you, you find that the, the war on terror, it's, it's impossible to define in any way that, that would correspond to any sort of human justice or, or anything. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And it's Friday. It is Friday, which is uh, tomorrow's Tremors. Or, or, today's, the, or today's future review of the news. Today's review of the future's news. I like mine better. You know, I give you a B plus today. I'm That's getting the better. Best score I'm getting I've ever better given each you month for remembering. I'm getting better each month. If I had the regular co-host on here, he would know it like that. But well, who is a regular co-host? <laughs> That's tongue planted in cheek. I see. See, I'm referring to you, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to be with you. Yes. Uh, I know we had quite a provocative show this week with Robert Hyde, mm-hmm. and we'd like to hear emails from you. And uh, yeah. hopefully, uh, we'll have Merv on here at the end mm-hmm. tell you how you can get a hold of us but uh, this is being recorded just to be honest with you on the 30th of september yes so the world may be completely different from the time you listen to this and what we do even though we're future quake here yes the way things are changing so mm-hmm. astronomically fast sure this has been a 48 hours that has been hard to imagine isn't it you know uh, what and um, i think it's just the beginning myself along with uh dr future over here and a number of other people from uh different places have completely flooded the the email fax and phone uh, systems of our various senators and congresspeople about the criminal bailout bill about the criminal bailout bill here, and uh, it's proof positive that the new world order doesn't have complete control of things yet. Yet, and we can still affect change a little bit. Um, there's a vote coming. But we're, we're also finding out who's on their side. Yeah, too. we're finding very oh, clearly, sure. even though those we didn't know. You know, you know, there is a list of who voted yay and nay. Maybe right. we should. That's right. Right. You need to look at. But let me just uh, uh, give you a, a little preamble. All right. Um, I'm sorry. I'm really Mike spun Shedlock. Up about this, I know we are, and I hope all of you all out there are spun up too. Mike Shedlock, better known as Mish, who is a regular on our show. Uh, those of you who are new to our show, he's only been on once since we've been in our new format. Mm-hmm. But he was singled out in the Wall Street Journal as one guy who marshaled his forces on the blog that we all recommend, his link, yep. globaleconomicanalysis.blogspot.com, yes. listed on our website. His people motivated, and we all, including yours truly, Tom Bionic, and everybody. And so everybody. A bunch of my, I, I want to thank the people at work. I talked to them. They came to, they came to the rescue. They sent 35 faxes. Wow. Uh, just well, just one guy sent 35 faxes to his congressmen, senators. Yes, to everybody for the bailout. Anybody who would, anybody who would listen, anybody got a phone line. People, we can at least we can at least scare them a lot. We can at least let them know we're here. Yep. We refuse to believe the total abject lies that mm-hmm. the media keeps pushing down. And I don't want to sound like nutty conspiracy theorist. But they're getting to where they almost force us to be that way. Yes. When they dominate these things, and then actually they called they called the uh, just before we came in here to the studio, they called the striking down of that bailout undemocratic. When ninety seven ninety seven percent of the people polled at one point were against the bailout. Well, most of the guys I heard that were were congressmen said the the faxes and phone calls they got were three hundred to one against the bailout. So how could that be undemocratic? Well, I'll tell you what's undemocratic. I watched the voting yesterday on C-SPAN. I watched yeah. this ongoing. Uh-huh. They had a 15-minute vote. We're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of the little minutiae, their, their, their procedures that they do. So mm-hmm. I know they have little tricks they do. 
Mm-hmm. But they get down to the point where it looks like it was going to lose as they – everybody, all the pundits, all the TV said it's foregone conclusion. This is a rubber stamp because the Republican and Democratic leadership was forcing it on all of the mm-hmm. other congressmen. Mm-hmm. you got to do this. you got to do this. And so when they start doing it and suddenly it starts coming back and miraculously it looks like it's going to lose against all of their judgments. So then basically we're watching the clock. The time runs out. There's one vote out of 435 still on the board. And so I'm wondering, well, aren't they going to hit the gavel, say it's done? I mean, that was it. It was a 15-minute vote. Mm-hmm. Well, then what we found out is they go over and start uh, strong-arming the people to change their vote, to go to yes. It's like, well, what was that whole point of this 15-minute vote? And so they basically just tried to bully them like gangsters or mafia to go switch mm-hmm. their vote over there, and they couldn't get them to do it. They couldn't get them to do it, and they threw, finally threw their hands up. But, yeah. but what was even worse was right before that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Pelosi – she tried to do a vocal vote where you just said, you know, how many A's, how many nays, so they would not take a hand count of how people voted. Well, that's certainly criminal. They they didn't want they didn't want any kind of uh, way to track who voted for yeah. what. And then and then they said yay and nay, and she says, oh well, the A's have it. And then they just started yelling and hollering in the chamber, saying no, no, no. Yeah. She said that they carried it, which would have been wrong. Mm-hmm. Based upon just and sweep that under well, the rug. Well, because she's a because there's a criminal element inside our government that is uh, trying to circumvent the laws as best they can. It'd be, I mean, they're so brazen. They do. Yeah. It, they, they think we are so. They have such a low regard for you as a citizen, you the listener out there, that they feel like they can do whatever they want, and you are so uh, vain, preoccupied. Uh, dead to what's going on, that they can do what they please, and now they flaunt it in front of you. You know, I, uh, I'll mention this to you. I've got all the Metrofax stuff, the CSV files, and everything. Folks, the way I send faxes to the senators, and uh, can I talk about this online? If, uh, well, Mish, you can say what Mish put on okay. his website. According to Mish, uh, you can go to Metrofax and sign up for their service. It's a 9.95 activation fee. We don't get any money for that. It's not affiliated with the show. Yeah, right? no. Although if you, I think if you put in uh, Doctor Future, you get free faxes. No, you don't. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I did get a uh, free meal at O'Charlie's once. Really? As a member of the media, I sort of crashed a uh, a thing to get in, and uh, uh, Emmett, who was with me before, we got mm-hmm. in to, for a free meal, and um, we found out later that it. Um, the thing was, it was only just open for family members. They were training new people for a brand new one. I see. And so we talked them into it since we were members of National Media. Oh. So that's the only handout I've got where I've exercised oh. and wielded my power. Well, let me say influence. this. Let me try and try my best to be succinct on this. Metro Facts, you can go there, and then you can go to Misha's site, and he has uh, every fax voicemail and fax number for every congressperson and senator there. So if you, for say, didn't did want to voice your opinion on this issue, however you wanted to voice it, mm-hmm. uh, you could you could sign up for Metrofax, get the uh, CSV files from uh, Misha's blog, Global Economic dot com dot blogspot dot com, mm-hmm. and uh, then send thou- a thousand mm-hmm. faxes per for yeah. every twelve dollars. Yeah. Again, we don't have any affiliation monetarily. That yes. you just mentioned as a way to do it efficiently, I am or you can just do it the old-fashioned way. The bottom line is. You've got to get involved. Yes. And we found evidence that you can actually put some fear into these people, even if temporarily yes. put a fear into them, mm-hmm. and you just let them know. You know, there's something to be said for good old-fashioned defiance. They are trying to bully the public now, and they're using their arm, the media, which mm-hmm. they control. The bankers control both the uh, the congressmen and the media. Mm-hmm. 
and they are trying to shame us into going along and playing playing the game they've had. Take them, and they're pulling out all stops. They're saying, yeah. let's, let's just uh, reflect here. They said that if it didn't go immediately as of last week and then yesterday, that it would be devastating for our economy. We'd have instant collapse. Well, and we had was, the single largest market gain. In the last 15 years today. 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 After they voted it down. Yeah. And, in fact, I, I briefly heard a report that they just did a measure of consumer confidence. Mm-hmm. After the vote yesterday, it went up. People felt better about our state after they wow. voted it down than before. That's amazing. So that means they are so completely out of touch. They don't even have a clue what we're thinking. But a lot of you out there or your relatives or people who don't listen to Future Quake State Forum can be easily cowed. Mm-hmm. by the media and be saying, oh, well, we have to do this. There's no choice. We have to. Um, it's for our best interest or it's going to hurt me. It's going to hurt bankers yes. if they don't do this. It's it's to save bankers. If you study in detail, mm-hmm. like like you and I have both pointed out, the mm-hmm. provisions that were originally in this uh, bill were, were not to have any judicial review they were, of this, to completely cut out a branch of our government yeah. for protecting us. So to, to, to quantify that. They intentionally even, put that in there. Yeah, and it's been in. To quantify for our listeners, they put in, in Section 8, I believe, they put in uh, a provision in this bailout bill that freed the Secretary of Treasury to buy funds with no judicial oversight. So meaning that he could buy funds and it could never be challenged in a court of law. Getting close to a trillion dollars and then could go up from there. Yes. And, and there, was, there was provisions in there to make it unlimited in certain circumstances as well, which hasn't been reported, but... People We're have no out. clue what this is, what it's for. All they've been told is your life will be miserable if you don't vote for it. Hurry yes. up. Hurry up and vote for it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to thank our uh, courageous members of the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. Democrats and Republicans, mm-hmm. who uh, are the old-fashioned uh, profiles and courage, like uh, JFK talked yeah. about in his book he wrote. We, we get, stood alone. You know, we should do a show where we have, like, Mike Spence and uh, – That's right. Her, Marcy Captor. Yeah, Captor and uh, McCotter. And, and, and Jim Bunning, Senator yeah. Bunning. These people who, Shelby. who yeah, have not been bullied – but, you know, the pressure that's being applied to them right now is incredible. Uh, I read that uh, one of the ones who, who knew better but voted for it anyway mm-hmm. said that they had been pressured to lose their committee uh, position on their committee. Mm-hmm. They were taking away, they were punishing them for doing what their citizens asked them to do. Yeah, well, and there was that other guy that, that made the illusion. He said uh, the voting the voting in, uh, in, in Capitol Hill was uh, under martial law. He yeah. actually used that phrase because he was continually thrown out of meetings that were open to him as a senator. It was on C-SPAN, and I think it's on YouTube. Yeah. Even you can go look it up on YouTube. He called it martial law. In Congress, that's what yeah. they said. Yeah. And uh, what, what that did in their terminology, it wasn't widespread out in the public, mm-hmm. but they're getting used to this term martial law, like cavalierly thrown around. What it did was it forced them to take a vote immediately without having an opportunity to fully read all of it. Mm-hmm. I had one of the press secretaries tell me, uh, that they were forced for it, and that's what I want to talk briefly about because mm-hmm. that's something unique to our show. Okay. If you look at the right places, you're going to hear bits and pieces of what Tom and I have just told you here. Mm-hmm. But uh, we've had a personal contact with some of these people, and we're starting to really see the depth of what's going on. One of the press secretaries told me that um, they were given – originally it was passed up as like a two-page thing. They were given something that was this huge monstrosity right before the vote, mm-hmm. and they were purposely not given any opportunity to read it before they voted on it. Wow. That is an agenda. There's sure. no reason other than somebody's going to ramrod something through. Um, well, and I think it's very telling that when the first when the first bill came through 
and they were passing it around, it had this whole thing about no judicial oversight and mm-hmm. all the ability to buy all treasuries, you know, at any time with no judicial or congressional oversight. That same provision has been in each successive revision of that bill. Really? So that what does that tell you? It says that's what they want in there. Right. That's what they draw the circle around yeah. is the key not to have anybody outside of that little body that mm-hmm. they bullied. Right. No one else could go back later and say, wait, 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 yeah. this is unconstitutional. Yeah. Um, but they're admitting basically that they are they are up to no good. This mm-hmm. is assassin. And I want to mention to folks, if you go to futurequick.com on the front page, uh, I uploaded there uh, a little description of what we were just talking about. That was written before the vote. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, the information there is still valid. They are still ramrodding the vote. They will not accept the will of the people on this. They will they keep not. keep pushing it forward. They said, we will keep pushing until we get what we want, regardless of what the people want. Mm-hmm. And so they're coming back. So go to the front page of futurequake.com. If you are listening in the uh, Tennessee area, I put the address, the facts, uh, the information, phone number uh, for your representatives uh, in this area, your co- your senators in this area. Mm-hmm. And I, but what also what I did was I took a copy of one of the many letters I sent out, and it's linked at the front of futurequake.com. Great. Feel free to use it or a variation thereof mm-hmm. if you'd like. Um, can I share real quickly some feedback I've been getting? Yes. And some please. Uh, please I've do. been as I mentioned I'm in a discussion with some press secretaries, and there are some things I have to confess to you all uh, just out of. Uh, uh, a sense of being a, a gentleman and honoring people who speak mm-hmm. things off the record. Uh, if they say it's off the record and I agree to, I I'm, you can't, will you honor can't, it. Yeah, but um, can't do it. Uh, I can give you a broad consensus of what I'm finding out from people. Okay. Uh, what, what these press secretaries are telling me from several senators and congressmen is mm-hmm. they have never, ever experienced the kind of feedback and overall um, – Frustration and anger from the public that they've gotten from this. Yes. And and what what reading between the lines, what they've told me, I sense is that they are absolutely shocked that that they would ever be in a position where the public would be looking over their shoulder and, and evaluating, critiquing how they're voting like this, which is exactly what we're supposed to be. Yeah. In a representative republic, it we're supposed to be right there watching it. it. it it's w- what a statement that the largest economic catastrophe. That we've probably ever faced, people that are alive here, most of us ever mm-hmm. have ever have ever faced, is what it finally took for Americans to wake up and actually pay attention to their elected representatives. Well, and they told me they're scared. They said they're actually scared of, of what's going on as far as the heat that's being applied to them by Good. their citizenry. And they feel like they're in a vice between the leadership in the House and the president and, and Pelosi and all these other coming down on the top, and the citizens are going the opposite direction on the other end. Well, I'll tell you, I made I called my uh, I called my representative, and I said, if you vote for this bailout, I will contribute my time and energy to whoever the opponent is. I don't even know mm-hmm. who it is, but I don't care who it is. I will not vote for you, and I right. will give money, time, and energy to your opponent mm-hmm. if you vote for this bailout. And he voted for it, and I intend to carry through on that. Mm-hmm. Are you at liberty to say who your uh, representative is? Yes, I am. It is uh, Congressman Jim Cooper. Voted Jim for the Cooper. Bail- Voted for the bailout. I talked to his Nashville office, talked to talked to his uh-huh. Washington, D.C. office. They were vague. He voted for the bailout. He's, uh, it's I, time to pay. Yeah. I, I will never vote for him again, and I will actively would, campaign. I, I will actively campaign for somebody who's... Uh, incredibly liberal, you know. So you're not even endorsing a particular person. I'm not. not I'm just, just saying. I am not endorsing Congressman Jim Cooper. He's did something against the will of the overwhelming public. He did. That have told him. And I called and I talked to his press secretary. 
I call and I talk to a scheduling person. I actually have some time to possibly work. I, I'm on a schedule board to meet when he comes back mm-hmm. into Tennessee. Um, and he still voted voted for this bailout. Mm-hmm. Well, let, in my particular uh, one, and um, I told you there were some things that were spoken to me in confidence. I'm going to be very careful what I say. Sure. Also, uh, several of these people, uh, we're trying to get them on air. To mm-hmm. explain about what they're saying, and they're they're sort of on the fence. Yes. A couple of them are they're vetting us considerably. They're going they're pouring over our website right now mm-hmm. uh, from several of these congressional offices. They are totally um, shocked and clueless about why is this such a big deal. They don't know why it's such a big. That's what they've told me. It's a big deal to the public. Uh, economically, they don't. They've just been told by Paulson. Uh, well, this is this is uh, this is going to be a disaster if we don't vote for it. Mm-hmm. I explained to them, as you understand, our listeners understand. A few weeks ago, Paulson said our banking system is sound, mm-hmm. everything is fine. We have been saying otherwise. We have been saying it's going to fail it's, for several several years. Yeah, Mish has been saying that. They have said it's fine, and mm-hmm. overnight they just say, "Well, you got to vote this in. Don't ask questions. Just vote this large amount, mm-hmm. or it's going to be disaster." Yeah. And I explained to them, uh, uh, people like Mish, the information, what he was doing. They said, well, can you send this information? Can you send the letter you wrote to us? We're taking in our staff meetings. We're going to review it with the senator or the congressman. That's what they've told me. They're oh, actually really? taking it in and reviewing it based upon the information because they didn't have any basic economic information wow. to make these judgments on. And, and I'm not saying this just because they were just giving me lip service. They called Dr. Future's house. They've called several times each of these press secretaries and spend a half hour or more on the phone really? asking questions about uh, what is really going on. What is this? What's happening? But they've expressed this incredible pressure that they're getting from above to vote for this. Every one of them has acknowledged that basically all of the feedback they've gotten from the citizenry, which has been overwhelming, is completely against it. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't know. It's not that we're just saying it's some but not others. Mm-hmm. Every one of them is getting this. So there's no excuse. It's not that they don't know the will of the, of the populace. Yes. And One poll I saw had 97% of the people against the bailout. Against it. Well, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. Why don't you go ahead and do the... Well, I just want to say that these press secretaries are very nice. They're mm-hmm. polite. I don't mean anything against them. We really want to have the representatives on the show to, Absolutely. to be fair, to have a fair assessment of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're on the fence sort of deciding whether they want to spend the time and energy mm-hmm. to do this. Or uh, One of them was very concerned when they read the letter on the front. And it says, you're not going to vote for uh, your officials if they do this, right? And he says, well, what about ours? Because they had already voted against it or mm-hmm. voted for it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it's coming back up for bid. I guess it's up to you to make a decision. Yeah. If you vote if you vote it down again, maybe I might even consider it. Might, might even consider might, it. Might consider and, it. And listeners as well. But let me just share. These are a few that were sent to me by these people, mm-hmm. uh, various ones that, that I've had. This is from Congressman Bart Gordon uh, in our area of our listenership mm-hmm. uh, here in Tennessee. Um, now, uh, they did confirm that he voted for it. Uh, they did confirm that all of their feedback from the citizens was against the bill, mm-hmm. and they voted for it anyway. Uh, l- l- some statements from his uh, press release on the economic rescue bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, this is the following statement on uh, on the House failing to pass the rescue package and why he voted for it. He says, I'm angry about this crisis, which was fueled by greed on Wall Street and federal regulators who fell asleep at the wheel. Uh, and let me say, this gentleman's in Congress. He has access to those regulators. Well, and, and he, to be fair, it wasn't the regulators. Uh, I'm, I, we could talk forever about this. Please. Well, there are committee members that are listening to Paul said, if we're asking questions, 
how come a congressman with staff and all these other kind of people who are experts in this not ask the questions you and yeah. I ask on our show every yeah. week? Well, here, I didn't want to get into this, but I'll say it. Elliot Spitzer wrote a letter saying uh, in January of this year that he got together with all of the state attorney generals and all of the state governors and formed a 100-person f- coalition to block these federal regulations that allowed predatory lending, mm-hmm. and they were blocked by lawsuit after law- lawsuit after lawsuit from the current administration. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's an open letter that was published mm-hmm. in the New York Times. A month after that, he was brought up on all of these uh, charges, right. which doesn't mean that they're not true. It's just the timing is a little they odd. They chose to pull through. They yeah. have dirt on all these guys, yeah. and they pull the dirt when they don't play games with well, them. Well, he didn't play games, and so they got him. Yeah. Well, well, here it says, uh, it says uh, this is from Carson Gordon, our economy is in danger of collapse. It continues to deteriorate daily, mm-hmm. just like that 440-something point yeah. upswing. I was talking to my mother, who reminded me that we have been down this road before, and it led to the Great Depression, which hurt every American. Um, it says Congress worked to change the initial $700 billion blank check proposal to a plan uh, to reliably free up the credit market. Uh, apparently, Congress did not do enough for Americans who are angry about this financial situation and uneasy about the impact of today's plan. I got this message and will work harder to find a solution to help Middle Tennesseans. Well, so so does that an endorsement that he will not vote for another plan, or is that what is he well, saying? Well, what I don't understand is he says Congress did not do enough who are angry about it, but he so he, he knew it. that before he voted yes for it. So he voted for it even knowing that Americans were angry about it. Well, that so, doesn't. That's just. Well, then that's just weasel words. It's saying I'm sorry. Basically, I'm sorry it didn't go through. It's like I'm sorry I got caught. Yeah. So anyway, that's one. Just I'll go quickly. Here's Senator Al- Lamar Alexander, Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've talked with them, and uh, when I tried to pin them down about wh- where they stood on uh, voting for this or against it, they said, "Well, we didn't get it. It got voted down in the House." I said, "Well, were you in support of it beforehand?" They said, "Well, it really doesn't matter. It's really not moot, not relevant since it voted down." I said. Really, I want to know if you supported this. And they said, no, um, uh, in fact, we don't call it a bailout bill. Uh, Senator Alexander is calling it, let me make sure I get it right, the uh, Amended Financial Rescue Plan for Main Street. Now, well. <laughs> it's, it sounded like, oh, well, they made some changes to make it acceptable to, quote, Main Street. Uh-huh. Until I get in my end basket... The actual call, you know, they, they would not say if he was supportive of this. Mm-hmm. Well, he had unfortunately already released a press release mm-hmm. saying he calls on Congress. This was just before the vote on what was rejected. Mm-hmm. He calls on Congress to approve amended financial rescue plan for Main Street without delay. Mm. So he he was supporting so what was sounds, voted down, but he just so, gave it a different name. So let's, yeah, I was going to say, let's get, let's, let me see if I have this right. Uh, to use a, to use a vernacular, uh, it didn't sound good enough. They they saw the bill as ugly, so they decided to put a little bit more lipstick on it. Well, and that's it. That's it. His yeah. words. And, and Senate people a little more sophisticated. They're not as blunt. They go. They know how to manipulate the public even better. All right. Uh, so they figured, well, a American people are stupid. Mm-hmm. And they're dumb. If we pick a few buzzwords that have warm feelings to them, we can mm-hmm. run everything through. So we'll call it financial rescue plan, not bailout. It's called rescue for Main Street. Mm-hmm. So if you call it for Main Street, people will think it's for Main Street, yeah. regardless of the contents. Yeah. Well, I know that you have more stuff to read, but I would really like to read this Federal Reserve statistical release here. Okay. And you can. I'll just read the. I'll just read the. Two main, minutes. Yeah. Um, 
On September 21st, there's a bunch of paragraphs. I'll just read the, the one that's important or most important. The Board of Governors authorized the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to extend credit to the U.S. broker-dealer subsidiaries of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Merrill Lynch against all types of collateral that may be pledged at the Federal Reserve's primary credit facility for deposit depository institutions or at the existing primary daily credit facility. Now that just means that they're pretty much doing what they've already done. Mm -hmm. okay. not, not, not a yeah. huge change. In addition, the board authorized the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to extend credit, now listen to this, to the London-based broker-dealer subsidiaries of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Merrill Lynch. <clears throat> what does that mean? That means yeah. that the Federal Reserve of New York is now is now lending money to foreign banks to foreign banks to foreign banks it, which is not their charter the federal reserve which no, is a private institute there's no constitutional there's nothing in the constitution that says the federal reserve can can start loaning money at random to foreign governments it's not it's it's run amok in it's, other words, it's, it's out of control. And uh, let me just mention, too, just to make things even better for people, uh, a couple other quick comments. Uh, if you go back and look at our stories we did back in the early spring, February, March time frame, you'll find out we talked about a secret meeting that was held with co with Congress that mm -hmm. was closed door. I remember I talking with you that a bunch Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich wouldn't go to it because they said if it's not open for the public, we're not going to be there. Mm-hmm. But the word that came out on it, which sounded absolutely crazy for people, is that there was going to be an engineered collapse of our economy starting in September and October. And that's yeah. what's one of the things they had planned to do, followed by martial law. Yeah. This was actually what was submitted then. Everybody thought it was crazy. Well, it's that time, and mm -hmm. you see what's happening. Uh, also, starting tomorrow, uh, as, and this will be in effect by the time you listen to this, mm -hmm. there is a, a brigade, an Army brigade, that is actually coming up and will be active uh, to stop rebellion in our own country against mm -hmm. posse comitatus. Yes. It's already said that they're going to be up and yeah. running. Their day-to-day -day operations are here in the United States to uh, for domestic and natural disasters. Okay. Merv, come in and tell everybody how they can find out more about Future Quake and mm -hmm. let us know what they think. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show, topics, or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're way over here. All right. Any last words? Here. Go get, get the faxes to your congressmen. Mm -hmm. Stop this. Stop this as quick as Don't you can. Don't let them win. Stop then. Do not let them win. Till then, we hope your future is very bright. See you back next Monday. Bye Have bye. a good evening. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake.